Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast for episode 31. It's a group effort and we've assembled the editorial team of Edith John, Steve and Tara to talk about the Dambusters. This was inspired by the sad loss of 617 Squadron pilot Lawrence Benny Goodman, who passed away earlier this week, and some of the incorrect news stories bandied around by various tabloid journalists. They said it was the last of the Dambusters, but anyone who knows anything about 617 Squadron and Lawrence Goodman would know that he did fly for 617 Squadron, but wasn't part of the Dam's raid. Why don't we sort of start with, like, what does everyone else know about 617 Squadron? Because it's one of those things that everybody who's a, you know, Englishman or Englishwoman seems to know a little bit about. I know quite a lot about them. I was brought up knowing about them. I don't know about you, John. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 70s, so you were still reading things like Commando, Comic and Victor, and it was for, you know, it was just legend then for kids, I think, to learn about these things. Not the detail necessarily, but just the rough story of this amazing raid, which involved so much kind of British ingenuity to create it in the first place, and then bravery to literally fly through a wall of flak well, like it was just a lottery of life, wasn't it? It was if your number was up, your number was up. There was nothing you could do about it. Mm. A lot of people don't necessarily know that it actually started like in the 30s with all the German engineering and what they did post World War One. I. I mean, for anyone who doesn't really know what the basic premise of the Dambusters mission was, it was an attack on three dams in the Ruhr Valley, so the Moan, the Ada, and the Sorpe. And the plan for that was that they would knock out a huge amount of industrial capacity in one fell swoop. So not only would it damage the factories in the area, but also displace a lot of the workers, which obviously is not a very popular thing these days. But during the war, you know, it was all about maximum impact for as minimal uh, collateral damage. And the thinking was that they could send one squadron on a really dangerous mission to uh, maximise the damage in one night. So... A special squadron was formed, 617 Squadron, which was put together by Guy Gibson using pilots and aircrew who were already experienced of at least one operational tour. And then they trained quite hardcore, low-level missions in the dark to drop what was then a very, very secret weapon that had never been used before, never been trialed, just a couple of practice bombs, really. And then off they went. So it's pretty much shooting in the dark. A real sort of suicide mission, but actually one that did what it was meant to achieve. As I understand it then, I mean, I suppose originally they probably thought they'd just torpedo these dams, which was something they'd be pretty good at, even from the First World War, you know, experiences. But it's right that the Germans put uh, protective nets in, I think. Yeah, the Germans definitely anticipated that. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole premise behind it, wasn't it? The, the, The bomb would skip over these torpedo nets and then hit the target and then sort of ricochet down and then placing the uh, explosive against the dam that would cause the maximum amount of impact for the explosive but i mean in order to do that in order to make sure that they cleared the torpedo nets they had to be at something like stupid in terms of altitude like 60 feet above the water so that they could make sure that the bouncing bomb as it was later called would skip over the torpedo nets and actually would be able to penetrate the dams yeah i mean so bouncing bomb has become like sort of the common vernacular, but it was the upkeep bomb, wasn't it? And it was Barnes Wallace who um, created this, uh, one of his many, many genius inventions. 
and again, it's one of those things that's kind of been lost in sort of time, isn't it? So I think most people's experience of the Dan Buster is, is from watching the, the film, isn't it? The Richard Todd version. I've never seen it. I'll be honest. What? How have you never seen it? I know. I've seen like a pretty much every documentary ever made, but I've never seen that. I think I'm just behind everybody else, to be honest. The effects actually make Thunderbirds look really slick, like the 60s Thunderbirds. <laughs> they didn't have a lot to work with, and it was all done with, with models and stuff. We were just talking about the actual sort of the scientific stuff behind upkeep, Steve. I mean, do you know anything a bit more about that? Because I know you've done a lot on, on the dams in, in the past. So what's your sort of take on the technology they were using back in the day? Well, the, the challenge was they needed to get the bomb to spin. The upkeep bomb needed to, to spin when it left the aircraft. So thanks to some to modifications that were made um, from uh, Chadwick, the Lancaster's designer, to the fuselage of the Lancaster, they um, modified a bunch of Lancasters to carry this innovative weapon, so-called upkeep. And they had to, they calculated that in order to strike a dam correctly, they had to launch it from 60, just 60 feet which from a huge aircraft like a Lancaster in the middle of the night was almost unthinkable. So this required a huge amount of training over various reservoirs in the UK before they were able to, to pull that off using you know, dummy weapons and stuff. So I think it was still very much um, striking out into the dark really when they went out to do it for the first time. They'd never done it for real before. When they approached, the, um, there were various challenges faced by each of the individual dams. Um, had to fly at 60 feet over the top of the water with all of them but the Ada Dam they had to dive almost dive in over mountainous regions past a castle get to 60 feet get in the right position drop the bomb or launch the bomb I suppose more specifically and then they had to climb out at a great uh, angle in order to not crash straight into the hills that surrounded the Ada so it was a particularly challenging and it's not surprising they had to, to undergo several attempts on each run on those dams. The Sorka was a bit different because that wasn't a built-up dam. It was more of an earthenware dam and there they had to try and drop the bomb directly onto it. But it still proved incredibly difficult to do and it required many, many attempts. But yeah, it was a very exact science and it needed a lot of uh, fine-tuning, but it was um, mostly down to the um, genius of Barnes-Wallace who, um, who came up with the bomb and its mechanism and of course um, Chadwick and his team at, at Avro that made the modifications to the, to the, to the Lancasters that would carry it. I understand it would be very hard for the modern-day RAF to, to do the same thing today using conventional weapons. So it gives some idea of how, how forward-thinking it was in 1943. Yeah, because a few years ago, there was the uh, documentary, wasn't there, they filmed in Canada, where they tried to recreate it using a DC-4. Does anybody remember seeing that? And they, they flew that in the sort of same sort of height conditions and, and what have you, but in the daylight without anybody shooting at them. And I remember the pilot at the time, saying how incredibly difficult it was just for him to do it never mind in the dark whilst being shot at yes ex exactly to in the dark being shot at in a 1940s airplane which is not accustomed to flying that sort of low altitude daring i mean you were talking about this sort of the science behind it but then if the film's to be believed it was quite heath robinson target bombsite they used wasn't it it was it was like the two pieces of wood with the nails on the end to actually align with the uh, the towers and the dams Yes, you had to use what you could in those days, I think. We didn't have such things as, uh, such things as infrared or heat-seeking missiles in those days. So it was very much rigged up to the precisely the right angle, precisely the right distance. And when it, when it was right in the crosshairs, that was the point where you released it. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about the altitude of these aircraft, it's kind of crazy to think how low they were flying because it was less than the wingspan of a Lancaster. 
wasn't it? So one twitch and your wingtips in the water. Yeah, yeah. Well, the altimeters weren't accurate enough, apparently, to actually get you flying consistently at 60 feet. So they developed this really innovative system where they had two spotlights, one on the front and one on the back of the plane, pointing downwards at angles. And they knew that when the two beams on the water met, that that was 60 feet. I mean, it's, it's simple, but so clever and so very British, I think, that they came up with that kind of solution. So as soon as the beams met, they knew they were at 60 feet, and if they could hold that, it would be the perfect launching altitude. That's actually really cool. I didn't know that. I just assumed that they were sort of like eyeballing it, to be honest. <laughs> you haven't seen the movie, obviously. Yeah, exactly. You, you need, need to watch, to watch the film. it. I told you I haven't seen the film. <laughs> Not that you can go off everything that Hollywood says. Although they are actually talking about this for a few years in the making, haven't they? They've been talking about doing a remake. Have they? Yeah, deserves it, I think, with some proper CGI. John, if we got into how many old war films deserve remaking with proper CGI, we'd be here for a long, long time. <laughs> the thing that interested me when I was reading up on this was that they actually they backspun the bomb. So while it was on the Lancaster, it was kind of hanging half in, half out of the bottom. They had to take the bomb bay doors off to house it. And then had electric motors which span the bomb at 500 RPM in a reverse spin. And they did this initially to make it skip better over the water, apparently. But they also discovered that when it hit the wall of the dam, rather than sort of bouncing off and going back, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet, where it would be less effective, it actually kind of made the bomb hug the side of the dam as it dropped. It dropped down to the bottom. So as the bomb sank, it stayed close to the dam because of this spin. And then when it exploded, it was that much more effective. There's footage somewhere of another test device. Well, I can't remember if it was a British one or it was a German version where it had a rocket attached to it. Oh, really? That, that span at a certain speed to get it up like a catamaran. And then the rocket casing came off and it bounced the rest of the way. I seem to remember it hitting the tail of the aircraft when it bounced. Yeah, and down it went. Yeah. Because it was in the shape of like a barrel, wasn't it, this bomb? A lot of people have the mis... If you've not really known a lot about it, a lot of people have the misconception that it was just your usual bomb shape. But it wasn't, was it? It was very much... I mean, it didn't look like a bomb if you you were to look at it, I suppose. I mean, Steve, you must have seen one of the original sort of practice bombs or or what have you. No, I haven't. To be honest with you, I've not seen one of the bombs at all. I do know that they were barrel-shaped and they had to be spun. That was the whole point of getting it to bounce across the water. It had to be spun and launched at a specific angle so that when it hit the water, it would not just sink into the water, but bounce off it a couple of times. And the distance had to be perfect as well in order for it to actually strike against the dam rather than not going as far as the dam or were still flying over the top of the dam and hitting something else, which did happen with one of them. So it was using rudimentary equipment. It was nevertheless a very exact science and an extremely arduous task for crews to do in the dark, flying at just 60 feet over the water. I mean, what does everyone think? Does everyone think the reason that we're so obsessed with the dams as a nation is the fact that it was Britain against the wall and having a go, you know, just, yeah. you know. It is pretty much exactly that. The actual damage that was done to German industry is a matter of debate to this day. And it is worth mentioning that in the attack on the Myrna Dam, some 1,300 people, including forced labourers, died as a result of the floods. However, the dam's raid took place during a point in the war where things were not going well for the Allies. And um, the true impact of Operation Chastise, as it was called, can be measured really in its heroism and by its effect on morale 
and its enduring legacy, it really boosted confidence among the Allies, especially the British, while doing the opposite to the enemy. It wasn't trivial, it just showed spectacularly what could be achieved when you brought together bravery, skill and innovation. And it was headline news. And yet, somehow, the rest of 617's war career has kind of faded into the background for most of us. I mean, the average person knows about the dams, but they don't know about the attack on the uh, viaduct or the eagle's nest using the, was it the tall boy or the Grand Slam? I can't remember which one it was. was it Grand Slam, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, 617 did an awful lot both before and after the dams, but that one mission is probably the most revered mission in all of the RF's history. So, inevitably, it's going to overshadow everything that they did. One of the tragedies, really, is that a lot of those guys that survived the dams raid were killed weeks later on other missions with 617 Squadron, bombing the canals, for example. I think there was something like only 48 or something like that actually survived the war. There were 133 airmen took off on the dams raid, and only 77 of that 133 returned from dams raid, 53 had been killed. But by the end of the war, only 48 of them were still alive. So that gives you some sort of insight into, I suppose, the tragedy of the war, really in that a lot of these heroic characters were just lost doing other things later on. Well, famously Guy Gibson as well, because, you know, he got the Victoria Cross for that, but then not very long afterwards he was killed in the Mosquito. Yes, not one of Guy Gibson's crew on the Downbusters survived the war. And nor did uh, squadron leader David Maltby, who was the one who delivered the final blow to the Myrna Dam. He was killed a month later, attacking the Dortmund Ems Canal. A lot of those guys that were killed now lie in a cemetery called the Reichswald Forest War Cemetery in Germany. And where possible, they have laid members of the same crew side by side together. So they continue to be a band of brothers in death as they were in life. It's quite a moving place to to visit. When was that? Was that a specific pilgrimage for the dam's mission or, or was it just you happened to be in the area? We went out there in 2018, it was the 75th anniversary of the Dams Raid, so we, we went um, on an organised trip to visit the Myrna and Ada Dams, which are still very much around and are tourist attractions, uh, in the same way that the Lake District is. So we went to visit those dams and we also visited some of the war cemeteries, including them into um, the Netherlands and Steenberg, which is where Guy Gibson is buried. As you say, he was lost in a mosquito in 1944 alongside his navigator, squadron leader Jim Warwick. And unusually, they're buried not in the military cemetery, in a civilian one, but the graves are very well tended. And uh, there's a model of Guy Gibson's sort of beloved black Labrador that's sitting in front of his headstone as if still awaiting his master's return. So, again, it's a, it's a, it's a moving place to visit. How many... Uh... Of these bombs, did it take to break the dam? Was it? Did it just need one good hit, or did it need multiple hits? Generally required two or three. You had Guy Gibson's bomb did. He was the first one in uh, on, on the Myrna. His bomb did strike the target, but it did not breach it. it. Took a couple more, a couple more to actually hit it, and it was David Maltby, I think it was, who delivered the final. Um, yeah, David Maltby's Lancaster delivered the final blow. Can you say it was David Maltby? David Maltby, he was the, 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 last, um, the last Lancaster crew to strike the uh, Myrna. It was his bomb that caused it to actually collapse, much like this internet connection. It didn't really um, make much of a long-term difference to... The German war. Effort. It wasn't like a long-term thing. Well, 
the Myrna for definite wasn't like a long-term thing. Although a lot of people were killed. I think about 600 labourers from Eastern Europe died and a total of like 1,200 actual people died in terms of production, which was what a lot of the aim was. In terms of production, it just didn't really make much of a, a huge difference. So that's, I think, when Steve, you know, says about like, the effectiveness is debated. I think that's what he means because, yes, it was quite a big loss of quote unquote German life. But in terms of what it actually set out to do, it wasn't that successful, maybe. Yeah, I mean, as Steve said, you could sort of debate that to the council home, really, couldn't you? Because it was more about showing what could be achieved with precision bombing on targets that, you know, you, you couldn't actually destroy with conventional bombs and showing what could be done from our island that was surrounded at the time. And a dedicated squadron of well-trained men set off and they achieved the impossible in one night. In terms of that, you can't really undervalue what they achieved. But you are right in saying that within a very short time, uh, I think capacity in the rural was almost back up to full level. Yeah, and I think a massive thing with the Germans throughout World War Two was this overarching feeling of morale. It was just something that probably knocked their morale a huge, a huge more amount than it actually knocked them as a force, if that makes sense. I agree with Tara. I think it was a massive propaganda coup, you know, and that's perhaps part of the reason it became so famous because I imagine at a time in the war when things weren't going brilliantly to have a great story like that about bravery and innovation must have been huge, a PR coup for the ministry. Yeah, because at that time, had Guy Gibson done two tours of operations? I think he started out on Hamptons and then obviously it was a period where he was a night fighter pilot, I seem to recall, from the Paul Brickhill story that I read as a kid. And then he came back and then he was on to Lancaster's and then obviously the dams. So he was a real war hero at the time, wasn't he? So to give him the Victoria Cross and you know, have him at the Buckingham Palace and then all the newspaper headlines, it was a, it was a huge propaganda piece. Yeah, I think he was just 24 when he was brought into this project. Can you imagine that? as a, You or me as a 24-year-old. Hello. <laughs> I'm a 24-year-old. But you're not a 24-year-old wing commander. Jumping a bomber, going risk life and limb. It's astonishing. I mean, I suppose at any age it would be an incredible feat, but 24, I mean, maybe they had that invincibility of youth about them or that, that sense that, that made it possible, whereas maybe older pilots would have gone, no chance, mate. I think they just wanted so hard to win the war. As much as that sounds like such an obvious thing to say, these boys or men primarily had been brought up hearing the stories of, you know, their fathers or grandfathers or, you know, even uncles, whatever, in World War One. And I think it was just such a huge thing that they could now go out and work towards saving their country just as their, their fathers, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, whatever did. When you think about it, I mean, they are called the greatest generation for a reason, aren't they? And I think everybody grew up really, really quickly. So to be a wing commander at that sort of age and to have that sort of operational experience behind you, and I suppose having done all that, you would have a crack at something else, wouldn't you? You would think, well, you know, why not give it a go? Yeah. Yeah. And something I was thinking about the other day was that life back then was very limited, wasn't it? You know, you probably didn't leave your own hometown that often. So these were big adventures as well. You know, it was getting out <laughs> You know, for a lot of military back in the war, you know, they'd get out and they'd see the world. You know, there was an element of that, I think, that there was a sense of adventure for young guys who led very limited lives. I mean, albeit extremely dangerous. 
projects like this one. I think as well, going back to the original point of Lawrence Benny Goodman, 617 Squadron, although it's primarily known for its attack on the dams, like you were saying before, James, you know, you had the attack on the eagle's nest at, I can never say this, is it Birchagen? Birch's Garden, isn't it? But Garden. Garden? I don't know. I'm awful. You wouldn't think I was a linguist. Anyway, and Lawrence was actually, you know, involved in that. So you had these men that did go to do the dams raids. And then you had other men as well that weren't necessarily involved in the dams raids, but you can't forget about those. And a lot of the time it is just, oh, 617, Dam Buster Squadron. And it's, you know, Lawrence Benny Goodman, who sadly passed away this week. He was part of 617 Squadron, but no, he didn't do that. He was a big part of the attack on the Eagle's Nest on the 25th of April, was it? So, Did you know, were you aware that there was moves afoot within the sort of ministries to, to stop the raid going ahead? There was this chap, he was an Air Vice Marshal, and he didn't believe it was worthwhile, and he thought that Barnes-Waller should get back to Vickers and carry on building the Vickers-Windsor. And he almost canned the whole thing. He even got Sir Arthur Harris on board with his thinking. So there was, within you know a couple of months out from the actual raid itself, it was almost not going to go ahead. But I think enough people were eventually convinced that it was worthwhile that they did it and they created this legend. It's one of those things, isn't it? If you describe to somebody what you're going to do before you do it, like, I want you to fly at night across to Germany at 40 feet and drop a bomb on water that's going to bounce. 60 feet. You're not going to give that the green light, are you? You had 10 times less technology than you do now. Nowadays, it might be like, yeah, okay, give it a go. But I think back then it was like, what are you doing? This is a suicide mission and it's not going to end well. But then it's one of those things that maybe technology gets in the way now. Maybe we are a bit too reliant on that sort of technology when actually it's, you know, seat of your pants lying. That's what was required, you know, skill and determination. And that's what saw the mission through. Yes, if they relied on the internet to get there, most of them would have crashed before they left the, ch- got over the channel, wouldn't they? So... There's something to be said for keeping things simple in that respect, yes. Steve, don't take your anger out on the internet on the podcast. <laughs> okay, I'll try, I'll try to restrain my rage. Why do you think it's still such a huge part of British consciousness? Because you think about every England football match, they play the March of the Dambusters. We had the kind of like label advert when we were kids before Tara was born, you know, where the guy was catching the bombs because he drank kind of like label. Why do you think it's still one of those things that people are really, really sort of obsessed with? It's PR, isn't it? It's boys' own stuff, isn't it? It's, it's a group of guys, about 133 of them, who took off on a totally audacious raid against Germany at a time in the war when things were not going well for the Allies. And they pulled off a spectacular success. The actual merits of it in terms of damage to industrial Germany okay, are debatable. But they did breach two of the three dams that they targeted. And in terms of boosting morale at home and further afield, impressing the Americans, we might add, um, it was a very valuable exercise indeed. And it's just one of those things that's ascended into the world of folklore, I suppose. And something stops being purely about facts and it becomes ingrained into the consciousness of people. Everyone's heard of the Dan Busters. Many people might just think it's just a movie. But um, people who know a little bit more than, than that know what a pivotal moment it was. I suppose in terms of Bomber Command, it's a bit like their finest hour, isn't it? I mean, they had a a horrible war of attrition, but it's one of those sort of shining beacons of hope that you could 
cling to that it was actually a successful mission, achieved its objective, and you know, it's gone down in history, as you say. Yes, it was the British and other Allied nations, of course, were also involved. But um, it was the Allies doing something spectacular and pulling it off. Was it mainly British pilots or only British pilots or were the Canadians and... Canadians, there were Australians, there were New Zealanders. There were doubtless more than that, mainly British, of course. But um, it, was a, it was a true sort of you know, Commonwealth effort. A lot of the nations had sort of joined the war um, and were flying with the RAF by that point. And uh, there were representatives of a great many nations involved. And so another question. Did they go out with full crews? Because I know that they took the top gun turret off, so presumably there'd be one man down. But did they just have a pilot and navigator or did they take a full crew? They had to have a gunner as well because... They did come up against a lot of flak, so they would be, you know, firing back to protect the lank. And they would also fire at targets of opportunity on the way in and out because they were flying at such a low level. The crews were composed of a pilot, a flight engineer, navigator, wireless operator, bomb aimer, who of course is very important, and two gunners, front and rear. Really? Wow. They would often fire tracer, tracer bullets as well just to, you know, send off all the flak and... I don't actually know in terms of how many gunners or how many people in the crews were injured, Steve. I don't know about how many sustained injuries. I do know that 53 were killed on that one night and three others were captured. Only 77 men returned to base of the 133 that set off. Mm. The statistic that I always find sobering is that by the end of World War II, only 48 of those 133 were still alive. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah, I did read that they had to make the plane much lighter to carry this huge bomb, and so they took all the internal armour out, which I guess made them even more vulnerable when you're flying through a wall of flak and you've got no protection whatsoever. You know, it's incredible, really. And according to the movie, they were the only squadron flying that night, the only bomber command squadron in the air. So I suppose every single German defence would have been aimed at them as they were going into the target. Well, the idea was to um, to fly at low level to keep it as secret as possible so they wouldn't be spotted. But, but yes, as soon as they were spotted, I'm sure the information spread very quickly and uh, all anti-aircraft facilities would have been waiting for them. Indeed, many, many were hit by anti-aircraft fire from the ground. Some were lost in accidents. Some had to turn back due to technical problems. The second wave, actually, there were three waves, and the first wave is probably the most famous one because it hit the Myrna and the Ada. The second wave, only one Lancaster actually made it through to its target. That was the one they were targeting the Sorper Dam at that point. And that was the one that um, the George Johnny Johnson was aboard. He was the bomb aimer on that particular aircraft. He's the only one of the dam busters that is still alive today. And they attacked the Sorper, dropped their bomb on it successfully and came away. That was the only Lancaster from the entire second wave that actually made it to its target. The others either had to abort, met with an accident or were shot down. The final, the third wave, another aircraft or two did get to the Sorper and they didn't get back home until something like five in the morning the following day. How long was Gibson there? Didn't Gibson fly on to the second target? And so they seemed to regress. Yes. Gibson uh, led the operation, so they arrived at the Myrna first, and Gibson's aircraft predictably was the first to attack. Obviously, they only had one bomb aboard, so once he dropped his bomb, he couldn't drop any more. But when he noticed that subsequent aircraft were being hit by fire from the turrets on either side of the Myrna Dam, Gibson very bravely 
So he'd come down and fly alongside the Lancaster that was making his bomb run in a bid to divert the fire away from that and onto himself. He did that repeatedly until they managed to breach the Myrna. And then, as you say, he flew on with the rest of the Lancasters that had not dropped their bombs onto the Ada Dam. And he was able to oversee the operation. Clearly, he couldn't strike it because he'd already launched his bomb. But yes, he was present over that one too. And he witnessed the destruction of that second. Well, we've still got Steve online. I think it's a good place to call it quits. I think we send Tara off to go and watch the Dambusters. And we'll leave it there. So uh, thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.